Hello and welcome to the Novel Analyst Podcast. My name is Jed Hearn and today's episode is titled Red Country by Joe Abercrombie. Unique and specific setting descriptions. There will be no spoilers in this episode apart from brief descriptions of settings throughout this book. Before we get into this episode, today's show is sponsored by my very own fantasy book, uh, Across the Broken Stars. Across the Broken Stars is a space fantasy adventure about a cowardly war deserter seeking redemption by undertaking a dangerous quest to find a mythical safe haven that may or may not exist. It's currently available for free on Amazon for the next five days or so. I have provided a link to that in the show notes, or you can go to jedhern.com forward slash across the broken stars. And once again, that is completely free on Amazon for the next five days. So if you're looking for some entertainment, I can highly recommend it. And now, on to the episode. Red Country by Joe Abercrombie is set in his wonderful First Law universe, the same universe where he has written The Blade Itself, Before They Are Hanged, and The Heroes, which are all books that I have analysed previously in the Novel Analyst podcast's history. Red Country can best be described as a kind of fantasy mashup with the Western genre. It's about these two characters, uh, a stepfather and his younger daughter, who have their children kidnapped by these bandits, and they set off across a, a desolate landscape reminiscent of uh, kind of colonial era England, uh, not England, colonial era America, um, sort of Western America setting. They set off across this landscape to try to recover their kidnapped family. Jeremy Crombie is really so good at just immersing you within the scenes in his books, and for me, Red Country takes that to a whole nother level. You really just feel every aspect of this wonderful Western fantasy setting. And by wonderful, I don't mean wonderful in the sense of it's a place I'd like to live, but wonderful in the sense of it actually feels pretty realistically bad and how it really shows you how much it would suck to be living in this kind of frontier landscape. So today's episode is going to be a short show, just analyzing some key bits of setting description that he has written in Red Country and applying... Uh, or rather, extracting a key technique that Joe Abercrombie uses um, in all of these to make you really be grounded in the setting descriptions. So the first example I'm going to pull is from page 102 of the book. Um, There's two characters, Temple and Shivers. Temple is kind of this cowardly lawyer who has just run away from the bandits who he was serving. Shivers is this, like, very gaunt mercenary figure, and they're sitting around a campfire um, about to have some food. Temple brought the horse up and hobbled it, stripped its saddle and the damp blanket beneath, abandoned it to nuzzle at whatever grass it could find. A sad fact, but the hungrier a man is, the less he tends to care about the hunger of others. Shivers had carved the carcass down to the bones and was eating from a tin plate with the point of his knife. More meat lay gleaming on some torn-off bark on the other side of the fire. Temple sank to his knees before it as though it was a most hallowed altar. What we can see in this extract here is a great example of preferring the concrete to the abstract. Brandon Sanderson has this really good lecture about the pyramid of abstraction. And essentially his point is that you need to ground readers in concrete descriptions. These are descriptions of things that are actually happening before you can get all lofty and wander away into abstract descriptions. So an abstract description would be something like, 
the dog looked happy, because that's an abstract concept. A concrete description would be something like, the dog barked, then scratched at its ear. The difference between those two setting descriptions is that one is just sort of this vague thing that to some extent lacks a bit of specificity and is usually the author telling something to a character, sorry, telling something to you as the reader. With the other example where it's actually describing what's happening, it's a case of showing, not telling. So if we look at Joe Abercrombie's example here, what Joe Abercrombie does so well in this little extract here is that he doesn't tell you what the characters are feeling, but rather he uses concrete setting descriptions to show you a bit of their character. Temple, for instance, is shown to just let his horse wander away to take care of itself, showing that he's pretty selfish. Shivers is eating food with the point of a knife, showing that he's not exactly a refined character and that there's an air of menace and violence to him. We also see some wonderful uh, simile here where the meat that is gleaming on the other side of the fire is to Temple's mind, who is this point of view character for this chapter, described as almost a hallowed altar. That's the quote from it here. And this kind of reflects his tendency to be swept up and to some extent like worship things that shouldn't necessarily be worshipped. For instance, earlier he is part of a mercenary group and to some extent he kind of worships the person who's leading that. Not in the sense of liking him particularly, but in the sense of kind of enslaving himself to that cause. The other thing we see in this extract here is that Joe Abercrombie is very concise and specific in his descriptions. We get a few small details and from those small details we are able to intuitively understand what else is going on. So we get the detail of the damp blanket underneath the saddle and then from that we kind of get this idea that you know you're going to be always like wet and muddy and, and sticky while you're riding across the plains. We get this idea of shivers eating off a, a tin plate so it's not exactly a refined plate it's just probably this thing beaten out of you know a hunk of old metal maybe even a shield and from those kind of two small specific details we get a sense of the grunginess and the lived-in feeling of this world and that is what I would really encourage you to think about with your own writing. It's very tempting to over-describe, to try and paint every little nook and cranny of the scene in your reader's mind. But often when you do that, you just are left with blandness. If instead you can just focus on one or two really specific concrete details, again, remember that pyramid of abstraction, you want to be anchoring your story in concrete setting descriptions. If you can just pick out a few small details, the reader will do the work for you. And something magical happens when you let the reader do your work for you, is that it doesn't just become your story, but it becomes the reader's story. So the other little setting description that I want to look at is less of a setting description and more of a fight scene. Now there's a big tendency with fight scenes to be, frankly, kind of boring, because often they devolve into very generic blow-by-blow -blow descriptions of this character swung the sword and the other character blocked the sword. Then this character shoved out with their shield and the other character blocked with their own shield. And you can get put to sleep pretty damn fast. But what Abercrombie does with this fight scene I'm about to share with you is he uses very vivid and interesting sentence structures and different um, imagery that makes it something unique and quite interesting within the context of the book. So to give you some brief description, 
Um, we have two main characters here. We have Sangeed, who is a character that the main cast of heroes, although heroes is really not a good term for it, the main cast of people you're following, because they are certainly morally grey, um, has just negotiated with. And one of those people who is doing the negotiations is called Lamb. And Lamb, up until this stage, has been a very passive character, but you have got the sense that he has a very bloody past behind him. And in this scene, fed up with how the negotiations go, he explodes. Sangi tottered up, one hand clutching at his chopped open throat, clawing fingers shining with blood. He had a knife, but Lamb stood waiting for it, and caught his wrist as though it was a thing ordained, and twisting it, and forced Sangi down on his knees, drooling blood into the grass. Lamb planted one boot in the old ghost's armpit, and drew his sword with a faint ringing of steel, paused a moment to stretch his neck one way and the other, then lifted the blade and brought it down with a thud, then another, then another, and Lamb let go of Sangeed's limp arm, reached down and took his head by the hair, a misshapen thing now, split open down one cheek, where one of Lamb's blows had gone wide over the mark. This is for you, he said, and tossed it in the young ghost's lap. Uh, So for extra context there, ghosts refer to the tribe that Sangeed is part of. So... What is really effective about this particular bit of description is that it progresses the story and it progresses character and it gives you a sense of the tone of the world. The fight scene is described in detail that might be gruelling to some readers, but for me, really represents the gritty reality of what that kind of conflict would turn out to be like. We also see this sense of inevitability towards how Lamb wins the fight. We see He is catching his opponent's wrist as though it was a thing ordained. We see him pausing before he takes time to do the killing blow. And then once he does the killing blow, Lamb hits the head again and again because he's not just content with defeating his enemy, but he wants to humiliate the corpse even in death. So what we see here is, again, very specific, small, concrete description details that elevate this setting description, or rather this little fight scene, above just a banal thing that has to happen, but instead makes it meaningful, makes it say something about the character, and progresses the plot by adding extra complications and revealing more of the story's world. We also see a particular use of pacing within the sentence structure, which is something that I quite like to do within my own fight scenes. There is this weird idea that short sentences equals fast reading, because Short, choppy sentences somehow mean fastness, but really when you want to have fast pacing, you want to have long sentences because a full stop is more of a pause than a comma or the word and. So if you have a lot of full stops proportionate to the amount of words, then you're going to have a lot of sense of pausing. So if we look at this one particular sentence, quote, He had a knife, but Lamb stood waiting for it and caught his wrist as though it was a thing ordained and twisted it and forced Sangi down on his knees drooling blood into the grass. That sentence probably could have had a few full stops in it. But by leaving it as this run-on sentence, Joe Abercrombie creates this almost breathless, pulse-pounding pacing to that particular sentence, and it stands in sharp contrast to some relatively shorter sentences that come before, giving us this sense of kind of racing excitement and adrenaline. And this is another way that you can just use small little tweaks within 
the sentence structure of your story to give readers an idea of the pacing. So while it's not strictly related to scene descriptions, that can be useful for when you're doing fight scenes. So in summary, if you're trying to create setting descriptions or just descriptions of any kind in your narrative, and you want them to be something that goes beyond the banal, the boring, and the sleep-inducing, I highly recommend grounding your setting descriptions in concrete details as much as possible. And once you've done that, make them specific. Don't just settle for any old cliche. Go for something that is unique to your story world. Remember back to that earlier example. You know, Shivers is not eating off a plate, he's eating off a plate made from tin. And it's presumably sort of crumpled tin that's seen some use. That is a very specific detail and it might not sound like a big deal, but by adding in these little things, and I know for a fact that that's what Abercrombie does because in on his blog he mentions how he specifically does an editing pass, going back, an editing pass, going back into his manuscript and adding these small specific details whether it's about the weather, whether it's about the, um, you know, like dewiness on the grass that they're walking through or a particular way that the character looks. Abercrombie actually does this whole editing pass just on um, adding these level of specificity and uniqueness to his setting descriptions, and it really pays off here. So hopefully these two small examples will encourage you to improve your setting descriptions in your own book, and hopefully it's given you some ideas for how to do that as well. And with that, it's time to wrap another episode of the Novel Analyst Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, go tell a friend. Whether that's another Abercrombie fan, or another fantasy reader fan, or just someone who likes listening to podcasts that analyze stories in general. I'll see you next time. Now go and write extraordinary stories. <laughs>